0: Over the last little while, we've been going through the Psalms, and we've been talking about um, we've been talking about them as the prayers that Jesus prayed. That is the prayers Jesus was brought up under, that every Jewish person was brought up to learn to pray, and we've um, celebrated, I guess, the breadth of the feelings and emotions and experiences that are brought to God in the Psalms. If this is really training people to pray, this is a wonderfully, wonderfully effective way of doing it. We've looked at, um, we've considered fear, we've considered um, these emotions of joy and praise that are brought to God, we've considered these emotions of grief, we've considered um, what it looks like to repent. All these Psalms have given words, if you like, to people to bring to God all of the gamut of human experience. One of the reasons we've called this the prayers Jesus prayed is that we're using this as a way to lead us up to Easter. Um, And today, we begin not to look at Psalms because they give us opportunity to bring ourselves to God and all of our experience... But we begin to look at Psalms because Jesus used them in the Gospels. And today we're going to start with Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. Let all Israel repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's, priests, Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, his faithful love endures forever. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me, he will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees. They blazed against me like a crackling fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die, instead I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. Open the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and It is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Psalm 118, that's quite a long reading for us, isn't it? Um, There's a lot to get your head around there. Um, It's bookended, if you like, with this celebration of this invitation to give thanks to God um, because God's love endures forever. The Hebrew word here is hesed, which we translate love or faithful love. Um, It's translated in lots of different ways because there's no exact parallel between Hebrew and English. Um, it, It talks about a love that is steadfast and faithful, a love that is reliable. A lot of this psalm looks like um, its original intent was for those who would be on a journey coming into Jerusalem, and there are a lot of psalms that we call them psalms of ascent. So Jerusalem was built on a hill. And so um, people would come on pilgrimage to go into the temple, into Jerusalem and into the temple to worship. And they would ascend um, up to Jerusalem. So we call them Psalms of Ascent. This has a lot of echoes of that, I guess you would say. Um, perhaps uh, this is the Psalm of David, we think. Um, perhaps it's uh, it, this is a, a bit of a celebration cry as people come up after war, and, uh, you know, an army coming up into Jerusalem, entering through those gates into the temple of Jerusalem. Perhaps it was also used by those pilgrims who would go from one city to another, outside the walls of their own city, heading to the walls of Jerusalem. And in those in-between places, as we saw last week, Um, Those in-between places can be places of uncertainty, places of danger. So here is a psalm that celebrates arriving at Jerusalem. And they go through the gates of Jerusalem into the temple to worship God. And as they've survived this journey, as they perhaps have survived this war, survived this zone of uncertainty, they come in giving thanks. So this is a psalm of thankfulness. It's a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm of journey. And, of course, it's a psalm of gratefulness for everything God has done. In the middle of it there is a reference to a cornerstone. Now, cornerstone and uh, capstone and keystone, or th- these are all um, different parts of a building that this, key, this, this um, instrumental stone could be. So if you're talking about um, a temple... The building of a temple, as a lot of the New Testament, uses Psalm 18 to talk about what God is doing among us. And Jesus is the first stone or the cornerstone that goes down in a temple building. And the, the importance of the, the cornerstone, can, it, it's difficult to overestimate how important the cornerstone is. This is a stone that is laid first. And if you're building a temple of grand, grand scale like they were doing um, with Solomon's Temple, that first stone literally determines where every other stone belongs. Everything is aligned. Everything in this building is aligned from this stone. It is absolutely instrumental to what this temple will look like. It will determine the direction, the position, and indeed the shape of every other stone. The size of every other stone will be determined by this one that goes down first. But there's another use of cornerstone that I think is more pertinent to Psalm 118. Remember, we've got a psalm of ascent here as people come up to Jerusalem and enter through the gates from one place of safety, and they're now at another. You see, the capstone of a gateway was the stone that was put into the top. It was uh, a skilled worker that knew how to determine which stone would be appropriate for that and indeed to shape it and carve it. The, um, the grain of the stone was vital to being able to support the arch. So you would build stones up uh, in a heap on one side of the arch and then you would begin to carve stones in a, in, so that you would get the arch across the top. And then you would do the same on the other side and you would begin to... And the, the capstone was that top one. That one that fit in, and it needed to fit in perfectly to make this gate safe to walk under. If it wasn't done well, the arch simply wouldn't work. Remember, these are times when uh, the wall around a building, uh, sorry, the wall around a city kept you safe. It kept invaders out. All that warlike language that sits here in Psalm 118, they escape from that war as they go into the place of shelter. It's an image of salvation, it's an image of arriving home. I think that's the best part of a trip, don't you? I've been on a few trips over, uh, over my time and uh, some of them have been for quite a long time. Uh, since I've been married, since I've had kids, I've gone on trips that have taken me away for you know, up to six weeks at a time. And getting home is the best part of it. It's that point of Thankfulness for all the adventures that have that's got, that have gone on, all those uncertainties that could have gone another way, all of those circumstances that could have been worse, and and here I am, home. I remember experiencing that moment of home as I flew from from Europe. I'd been away for six weeks. Um, we flew from from London, uh, a direct flight that took me all the way to Australia, and. I remember passing over the, um, and they told us that we were passing over the northern coast of Australia, and um, this sense of relief oh my goodness, everyone's going to understand what I ask now. And um, I, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, the next place I stop will be Sydney. I've, I, I know Sydney, I've, I, I've been there enough. Um, nothing will be a surprise from here, hopefully. Um, and indeed, it wasn't. Um, this sense of um, you know where I belong—that's what's happening here in this psalm. There's a sense of arrival, and here is the place that pulls our nation together. So even if this wasn't, if even if this wasn't someone's home, Jerusalem wasn't someone's home. Um, this is the sense of the centre of us as a nation. The place, the, the the people that God has pulled together. This is where we worship. This is where we get our story from. Uh, this is where everything begins to come together for us as a people. Famously, Psalm 118, of course, is used by Jesus. Um, I want to give you an example of this, um, and I will read through this parable. This is um, from Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem himself. So we we know that there's a a point in Jesus' story where he um, does all his healing and all his miracles in Galilee and then he turns his face towards Jerusalem. This is the place where all the priests are. This is the place where all the offerings are made. This is the centre of the nation still. And Jesus arrives and... Um, causes a little bit of trouble, a bit of a bit of a stir from him being there, and he tells this story to these Pharisees, these leaders of the Jews, uh, religious leaders, yes, but they also encompassed all the social and uh, legal life of Israel, and Jesus tells them this story. Now listen to another story. A certain landholder, landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a large group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asks, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on it, who it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realised he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. You know, clearly Jesus is prone to be misunderstood. We tend to do things in our own worldview bubble. We think those in power and those in authority, those who are going to make a difference in the world, they are the ones who rise to the top. Jesus comes humbly riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus comes as one who seems to stand against the religious powers of the time. He gets himself offside with them. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a god. There may have been plenty, plenty of hints that have raised lots of questions about who Jesus is by now. But there are plenty who are threatened by him. So Jesus tells, in this city of Jerusalem, a story about ownership. There was a man who built a vineyard, made it exactly like he wanted it to be, owned it, and then he let it out, he rented it out to others. Bizarrely, bizarrely, this these tenants think they own what is produced by what is owned by another. They behave as though they are the owners. So they destroy anyone who comes. To take the fruit to the real owner, I always hear this story, and I think to myself um, why did, why is this owner not learnt? I mean by the time you 've sent all these servants, by the time you 've sent all these people and they 've all been killed, why would you why would you then think There'll be a change of heart if I send my son. It seems that there is a, a radical, radical patience being demonstrated here. There is a radical grace being demonstrated here. There is a radical love being demonstrated here. After all, by the time Jesus finishes this parable, and talks about um, the son even being killed, and then he turns to his audience and says, so what do you think this landowner is going to do from here? And all of them kind of pipe up, he's going to take them out. He's going to take revenge on these people. He's going to let this vineyard out to another these are not Jesus' answers. These are the obvious answers presented by the people. And then Jesus famously, wonderfully refers to Psalm 118. Can we read that actually, Micah? It's two slides back, I think, buddy. There it is, yeah. Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I always find this story very, very strange, in that Jesus has just told a story about landowners who sorry about a landowner who rents out then there's a whole bunch of murders and beating up a son is sent and then they kill him in the with the idea that they will then own and jesus tells this quotes this passage the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone this is the lord's doing and it is wonderful to see it's really saying, what do you see in Jesus? And you know their answer, the religious leaders' answer, the answer by those who have all the incentive to keep the system the same, the, guy, the people who live off the system, their answer to this story and then this pointer so, the idea that what is underestimated is becoming the key, it's becoming the way you can get into this place of safety. Their response is to leave and plan to kill him. I think that is a definition of insanity. That is seriously, seriously mad. Jesus has just told this story and they set out to be the ones who will kill. Yet right in the middle of this, right in the middle of this is this very clear statement that you will either see Jesus as the stone that absolutely matters... That determines everything, that provides a way of escape from the wild places, or this will be one who crushes you. Quite pertinent kind of language when you think that um, only 30 odd years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jerusalem is destroyed. That whole temple system is pulled down and still to this day it has not been rebuilt. It is not the same. So I want to invite you today to begin to prepare for Easter. And I'm going to do that by asking you, what do you see in this alarmingly humble one? What do you see in this one who would go to the cross? What do you see in this one that would ride into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey? What do you see in this one who is praised by the people? And opposed by the powers that be? It's a very, very important question because if you think life is about climbing to the top and having more than everyone else, being more successful than others, if it's about being on the right and left of Jesus in his glory rather than, uh, you know, taking those thrones of the kingdom. If that's what life is about for you, this stone will crush you. You will look at Easter and you will not recognize the heart of God in it. But what if, just imagine for a moment that our bubble around earth that tells us that it's all about climbing to the top is too small? What if there is a much, much bigger picture to the universe and it is shown in the heart of Of this one, we celebrate at Easter. Who didn't simply conquer and destroy. But who was destroyed. And raised again by God. What if the heart of the universe... At the heart of the universe is one who is humble. What if at the heart of the universe is one who is giving? What if at the heart of the universe is one whose faithful love goes beyond yours, even when we don't do the right thing by this one? What if? The universe is upside down because we think we are the right way up. This matters. It matters because it looks absurd to us that the God who created everything would behave like this. And it matters because you were originally created in the image of this one, in the image of this humble and giving one. I know we all want to find our fulfillment in the world, and rightly so. But if you believe it's climbing to the top, you will never see God in this one. But if you believe it is all about trusting God and going down and taking the low road and taking the humble road, you will recognize this one in Easter. So do you cease to see Jesus? as the capstone that creates a gate for you to escape into and find salvation? Or do you see this Jesus as a cornerstone that is building a brand new reality in the community of people he calls? Or are you going to fight this stone and find that it crushes you as you go to the top, but it urges you, Jesus urges you to live the life of humility and love and vulnerability and prayer and faith. Don't misunderstand. This Jesus going to the cross is the glory of God. This Jesus pinned to a Roman cross, vulnerable, naked, dying, bleeding, this is the glory of God. It is the heart of God revealed. And indeed, it is the heart of reality revealed. What do you see? Amen.